You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Why are New Year's resolutions so hard to keep? By Keith Lockage. Welcome to Philosophy for a Living on Earth, coming to you live from the Ayn Rand Institute in sunny Santa Ana, California. I was getting a reflection off a window in a building across the street and it was shining across my face, so I just took care of that. So uh, let's get started. So this is our weekly web series, exploring life's big questions and the answers to those questions coming from the ideas of Ayn Rand. So I'm Keith Lockich and I'm your host this week. And today we're gonna to talk about New Year's resolutions. So this is, our, this is our first session of 2020. So I thought it'd be a good time to explore the question of why are New Year's resolutions so hard to keep? So let's jump right into that. So let me start by saying Happy New Year to all of you out there. You know, it's the start of a new year new decade. Um, and that's always a good time to kind of reflect on your life and to take stock of, you know, take a big picture perspective of, of where you are in terms of your goals and your values and, and on where you want to be. So we have a tradition of, you know, making New Year's resolutions. We take certain aspects of our lives that we want to try to improve and we set some goals. We resolve to make a change for the better. Now, Unfortunately, as I'm sure you're all aware, New Year's resolutions are, are notorious for being goals that people fail to achieve. You know, there are various polls that ask people about their New Year's resolutions. You know, a pretty commonly reported number that I've seen is that around four out of five people who set New Year's resolutions don't keep them for very long. You know, the numbers vary from poll to poll, but I think they all suggest somewhere in the neighborhood of, of around 80% of people fail at keeping their New Year's resolutions. I saw one report that even suggested that most people's resolutions, you know, don't even last longer than January 12th. So, you know, I think it's, it's gotten to the point where a lot of people, I think, have become pretty cynical about this whole tradition, right? New Year's resolutions are often viewed as somewhat of a joke. You know, there's a whole genre of memes making fun of the very idea of setting New Year's resolutions, right? So, you know, are, are New Year's resolutions a joke? I mean, is this just a stupid tradition that we should get rid of altogether? You know, and I think more to the point, is this just an exercise in self-delusion? I mean, are people just fooling themselves into thinking that they can make significant improvements in their lives, that real change is possible? Well, I don't think so. And I think that what the widespread failure of New Year's resolutions points to is just how difficult it is to define and maintain goals that will truly have a positive impact on your life. You know, New Year's resolutions are hard to keep because it's, it's challenging to define appropriate goals. It's challenging to formulate a plan for working towards those goals and achieving them. And it's challenging 
you know, to sustain the motivation and willpower to maintain those goals over time. This is not an easy thing to do. So, you know, it's not just as simple as, you know, sort of writing down uh, some goals on New Year's Eve and then expecting them to just happen. To make important changes in your life for the better takes a serious commitment to yourself and a carefully thought out plan of action. Now, there are lots of books and articles out there that have a lot of advice to offer on how to go about making changes in your life. Now, I'm not a psychologist and I don't wanna to pretend to have expertise that I don't have. What I plan to do in today's session is I wanna say a little bit about you know, some of the advice that's available out there that you can find if you search this kind of literature. Then what I wanna do is I wanna say a little bit about what I think is a, a deeper moral issue underlying the challenges that people face in this area. So if you take a look at the, at the psychology and the kind of self-help literature, you know, you'll find lots of useful tips and bits of advice on, on how to stick to your New Year's resolutions. You know, for instance, take the issue of, of defining appropriate goals, okay? Often our goals fail because they're not well-defined in the first place. They might be too vague and aspirational rather than specific and measurable, right? You know, in 2020, I want to exercise more or save money or lose weight. Okay, how much weight? You know, how quickly, right? If you set a goal of dropping 50 pounds by the end of January, you know, that's probably not very realistic or achievable. And, and how do you plan to go about doing it? You know, what changes to your diet or exercise habits are you going to make? And are those changes realistic and sustainable in the long run? So your goals, you know, need to be specific and well-defined in terms of how they'll fit into the rest of your life. Or consider the need to have a plan. You know, I think often one reason that people's New Year's resolutions fail is that they're unrealistically overambitious. You know, starting January 1st, I'm gonna work out every day of 2020. You know, but is that really realistic? And do you really have a plan for how that's actually gonna fit into your life, right? So you go to the gym the first day, maybe you go the second day, you know, then work starts up again in the new year. And, you know, by the 4th of January, you get stuck late at work and you have to pick up the kids and then it's late and you're exhausted and there's no dinner on the table and it just doesn't happen, right? We've all seen the phenomenon of, you know, our favorite workout place being packed with, you know, New Year's resolutioners for, a first, for the first few weeks in January and then things settle back to normal, right? You know, this is also, also the stuff of kind of cynical memes, right? Um, this one and, and then there's this one. <laughs> so, you know, one piece of advice that you'll see on the issue of having a plan is the idea of starting small, right? Making incremental improvements that will add up to bigger changes in the long run. So don't plan to work out every single day, plan to, um, you know, hit the gym at least once and just give it a shot and then maybe once a week or something like that, right? So th these kinds of incremental changes are more realistic and more sustainable. And then, and then there's, this is the idea of, of atomic habits, if you're familiar with that book. So you need to give a lot of thought to how you'll go about making changes to the habits that you live by on a daily basis. You need a plan for that. 
Now, as I said, there's a whole arsenal of skills and tools that psychologists have developed, you know, that can help people stay on track with their goals. And I encourage you to seek those out if you find it difficult to maintain your resolutions. What I want to turn to now is an issue that I think maybe, you know, cuts even deeper on the question of why New Year's resolutions are so hard to keep. And, and it has to do with the moral status of this kind of goal setting. So let's turn to that now. So the first point I wanna make here is about the kinds of New Year's resolutions that people make. If you go, if you look at lists, you know, there, there are articles that give lists of the most popular New Year's resolutions, right? If you go look at uh, what some of the most popular resolutions are, what you find is something interesting. Many of the most popular New Year's resolutions that people make are, are you know, this is kind of obvious, but they're related to self-improvement, right? What do people resolve to do on New Year's Eve, right? They resolve to exercise more, improve their finances, to eat more healthily, lose weight, get more sleep, right? You know, things that are aimed at, at self-improvement. In other words, we resolve to make changes aimed at advancing our own well-being and happiness. But Implicit in this is the idea that what we're doing here is we're making a deeply held commitment to our own selfish interests, right? Now, the problem is that our culture is dominated by a moral perspective that views selfishness as wrong, as something bad. So there's kind of an inherent conflict between the whole moral orientation that's required for setting life-changing goals and the moral orientation that our culture upholds as ideal. You know, what is our, what is our culture view as the essence of being a moral person? Well, you know, I think we know the answer to that, right? It's helping others, it's being altruistic, it's sacrificing for the common good. Right? Ask not what you can do, what, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, right? And this is what our culture views as, as morally challenging. In other words, this is what takes work, right? This is what takes moral effort, being altruistic. What's, what's difficult and what requires effort on our part is beating down our selfish desires and suppressing our selfish interests so that we can sacrifice for the sake of others. You know, that's what our culture views as morally challenging and that's what our culture views as morally praiseworthy. Being selfish, on the other hand, is not viewed as morally challenging at all, right? It, to be selfish is sort of, is viewed as, as the easy path, right? And it's certainly not viewed as morally praiseworthy. Now, I think that there's, there's to some extent, this whole perspective that our culture has about morality is part of what underlies the difficulty that people have with New Year's resolutions. And the reason is that to make the kinds of changes in your habits and in your life that are necessary for real self-improvement and happiness takes a major serious moral commitment. You have to dedicate yourself to yourself, okay? It takes, a, it takes a demanding, sustained effort to set rational goals and to follow through on them. It takes an incredible amount of thought and effort and willpower, okay? 
So, you know, to be truly properly selfish in the sense that Ayn Rand advocates is something that requires a whole set of moral principles or virtues to guide your thinking and your choices. It, it requires the very best that you have in you. But notice, you know, that none of that is recognized by today's conventional morality. And the result of this is that people are left without guidance on some of the most important questions in life, questions about what really matters in life and what sorts of goals and values you should pursue. So because of the, the state of our conventional perspective on morality, we're left without guidance on how to go about pursuing our own happiness and our own well-being and our own uh, you know, values and the things that we want out of life. We're just left without guidance on that. Ayn Rand is the only thinker who will tell you that the achievement of your own happiness is and should be your highest moral purpose. Now, by today's standards, I mean, that is a radical moral perspective. So let me say that again. The achievement of your own happiness is your highest moral purpose. Ayn Rand is the only thinker who will tell you that. And she's the only thinker who can offer you a whole system of ethics to teach you the principles that you need to follow in order to achieve your own happiness. Now, what those principles are is a whole other topic. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap up here and I'm gonna make some recommendations for further reading. Um, and then we can, we'll turn to the Q and A in a minute. So just, so to summarize what we've discussed, New Year's resolutions are hard to keep because they require a whole arsenal of psychological skills and tools that are needed to set goals effectively and, and to maintain them over time. More fundamentally, I think they're hard to keep when the whole weight of the culture militates against the idea that your own happiness should be your highest moral purpose, that it's, that it's morally laudable and praiseworthy to make a deeply held commitment to your own well-being and happiness. So I think the tradition of, of making New Year's resolutions is a good one. I think, it's, I think it's really great that we have a tradition of kind of taking stock of our lives and thinking about ways that we can make our lives better. And I think it's a really positive sign that you know, the most popular New Year's resolutions are ones that have to do with self-improvement and, and, and um, you know, improving our lives, improving our health, pursuing our own happiness. Um, so I think this is all a good thing. I also think this is, not, this is something that we should be doing all year long, you know, not just on New Year's Eve. Um, so we want to be making this kind of, of moral commitment to ourselves, not just once a year. It's something we want to be thinking about all the time. Okay. Um, okay. So if you're someone who made New Year's resolutions this year, let me just say, I wish you all the best with them. And I hope you succeed at doing the hard work of pursuing your own selfish happiness. And if you need, um, if you need more tools to sustain your motivation and to guide your thinking and your actions, I encourage you to explore Ayn Rand's philosophy further and see what you can learn about it uh, from Ayn Rand about the pursuit of happiness. Um, 
I think the best place to start, if you haven't already read them, is with Ayn Rand's novels, um, especially her two major works, Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Um, okay. Now, if you want to have a, a really deep dive into Ayn Rand's moral philosophy, her book, The Virtue of Selfishness, is, is a must read. And so is Leonard Peikoff's book, um, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, um, which, which you know, goes into great detail about how to understand and apply the moral principles that Ayn Rand advocates. Okay, so that brings me to the end of my presentation. Let me wrap up there. Um, in just a minute, I'm gonna be joined by my colleague, Ilan Giorno, who's gonna help me moderate the Q&A. Uh, but before we get there, let me just uh, do some of our usual announcements. So Ilan, who's joining me today as moderator, is also going to be our presenter next week. And, and the big question that he'll be discussing is, who decides what's right or wrong? Now, to me, that's a really interesting question. Um, so I think you definitely don't want to miss next week's session. So that'll be next Wednesday, one week from today, same time, same day of the week. So be sure to tune in next week. And, um, you know, let us know if you have any big questions you'd like us to take up in future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Um, so let us know about questions that are on your mind. You can send them to webinars at aynrand.org. And before we turn to the q and I, uh, I uh, want to do something that we do every week, which is ask our poll about uh, your familiarity with Ayn Rand. Part of the goal of this webinar series is to introduce Ayn Rand's ideas to people who are not already familiar with them. So we're curious to know, you know whether we're reaching our target audience. So I'm going to put up this poll. And if you're watching today, let me launch the poll. Um, go ahead and uh, if you're watching this on, on Zoom, go ahead and vote on, over the Zoom poll. Uh, let us know what your familiarity is with Ayn Rand, and that'll help us um, do what we're doing. All right, so I'll just leave that poll up there uh, while we do the Q&A. And I think we are ready to move to questions. So I'm going to stop my screen share here. And uh, Ilan is going to join me. Hi, Ilan. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me today. Sure. How are you, Keith? Uh, thanks for the presentation. All right. So, what do we have? We have. To, do we have some questions? Well, let me take. Uh, while we get the questions sort of in the queue, let me ask you a moderator's prerogative type question. Um, what you know, you you are stressing this idea that um, making resolutions for self-improvement requires a serious moral commitment to yourself. I'm just curious, what do you think about most people, if you if you unpack that for them, how they would sort of think about that? Would they be comfortable with the way you, you presented it? Or is that more like, that's the implication of what they're doing, even if they don't think of it that way? Well, let me, I mean, let me make one clarifying point, because I think it, it's, it's uh, what I, what I'm not saying is that, you know, people um, don't stick to their New Year's resolutions sort of because altruism, right? What I'm trying to get at is the degree of the commitment that one has to make to oneself is, is really high and really intense. And it takes a certain moral perspective on your life and on, on your value 
you know, it takes a certain degree of self-esteem and, and it takes a certain perspective on your own self-worth and the importance of doing that in order to, in order to uh, set those goals and sustain them and all that sort of thing. So um, that's kind of what I'm getting at with this, that, that, um, that I, I do think that, that our, we don't have a culture that recognizes that to pursue your own self-interest is, is a demanding, noble, you know, moral challenge, right? It's, it's, it's you know, self-interest is either, is, is either dismissed as, as amoral or just, or, or, or derided as immoral. The idea that there are, the idea that there are real moral questions and real moral challenges and that we need the guidance of moral philosophy in order to pursue our self-interest and really achieve the best we, that we can out of life. That's what I'm getting at when it comes to this. And I think, and I, and I do think that that has an effect on why it is that, that people just sort of fall into old habits and, you know, con continue in a sort of passive way with, with how their life proceeds rather than taking a really active role in, um, in uh, you know, pursuing changes. So let me, let me, there's a question from one of the viewers on Zoom, Matthew. I'm going to take the question uh, and just uh, present it slightly differently and add to it. So it's more of a pushback, which is saying, well, there's, I, you know, I, I get the sort of philosophical point, but aren't there psychological factors here? And as you said in the presentation, you're not a psychologist now. I don't want to put you in a position of having to address that. But, I, you know, one thing you said about self-esteem really struck a nerve when I was listening to it, to, to what you're saying, which is that, um, I mean, Ayn Rand's conception of self-esteem is, is both philosophical and psychological. And, and so there's something to be said for, um, you know, so maybe you can share a perspective on what are some of the reasons, because you know, if you think about people trying to improve themselves and one of the ha sort of challenges they face is I, you know, one layer of understanding is they need self-esteem. They need to value themselves, to, as you put it, to commit to themselves. What are some ways in which that's sort of the connection between that and your basic argument? Yeah, I mean, it's not like there's a dichotomy between psychology and philosophy. And there are aspects, that, there are issues where they're deeply intertwined. And Ayn Rand, you know, Ayn Rand had a lot to say about psychology and she had a deep understanding of human psychology that I think largely grew out of the fact that she was first and foremost a novelist, right? And, and she spent a lot of time thinking about how to create realistic depictions of characters in the novels that are both, you know, that, that both expressed her philosophical ideas, but also had a, had a real psychological reality to them. So, you know, absolutely, I mean, part of I, I I tried to stress in the presentation that that you know um, having having that arsenal of psychological tools at your disposal is critical, um, but you know again it's not my area of expertise and um, and I think the, the 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 kind of moral philosophical issues that I was raising are ones that I think are less recognized. I think it's I think it's it's better recognized out there in the culture that, you know, 
that there are a lot of psychological factors, you know, I, I, uh, of the kind that Matthew is raising in the chat here, that 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 affect um, our ability to stick to our goals and that kind of thing. And then and 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 we need to and we need to devote a lot of time and thought to those issues and to maybe overcoming some of those challenges if we're if we have if we have them. Um, uh, but I think it's what's what go what's what's largely unrecognized are the kinds of moral issues that I was trying to raise in the presentation, uh, and that's why I, I wanted to put the stress on that. Yeah, and I, I just want to add one thought to that, which is um, really to amplify something you said, which is I, I agree when when people have New Year's resolutions and they're oriented because they can can have resolutions to do things that I don't think are really good for them, but when they are oriented to doing things that are good. Um, I agree. I think it's a positive. Um, the one, one sort of uh, reservation I have is, and this is a point you mentioned, which is, I think the the key thing is to have that orientation 365, not just one like sort of one seasonal perspective on your life. And this goes to your point about um, that Rand's conception of. Um, your self-interest and what it means to have a, a rich life. It, it's something that you don't just do it once and put it away. It's not set it and forget it. It's a constant cultivation of your goals and ranking and re-ranking and then something new you're interested in and how does this fit? And then you have children and how do they, you know, you have to reprioritize and then are you going to get to the gym every day? Is that even realistic? Do you still want to be that committed to that goal? Um, and, and so I think that the, the really helpful um, one way I think of this is uh, Rand's philosophy of objectivism is about personal growth in a really fundamental sense. It's not just, okay, let's, let me get, you know, one of these books on goal setting and time management and I'll get my system in order and then I'll be set. It's more like really think about your life and goals. And, and maybe once a year you want to have like a review that that's great, but I wouldn't make that sort of, the only thing you do. So yeah, set resolutions, but not only once a year. Uh, I was just curious about your reaction to that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think, I mean, there's a way in which there's a, there's a, as I said in the presentation, you know, I think there's something that's really healthy about this tradition, but if it's just a tradition and people are following it passively, then it's kind of missing the point. Right. And so they'll go from, you know, well, New Year's is a time where we make resolutions for self-improvement, but, but then, you know, Valentine's Day comes along and what's that about? Well, that's about sacrificing for the person we love. And then Easter comes along and that's about God or it's about bunnies and chocolate or whatever the hell you celebrate it, right? And then, you know, and so if it's just sort of following the rituals and traditions of our culture, that's kind of missing the point. Um, it's the, what I like about it is the idea of a focus on self-improvement, but, you know, that's the, the point is that that's something that should always be top of mind and and seeking out the both the philosophical and the psychological tools for doing that is something you know we, we can all resolve to do you know on an ongoing basis a continual basis so uh let me ask the people so some of the folks are involved and in, we're getting more questions in the queue and we'll, we'll get to those momentarily just one sort of uh suggestion for people we love having your comments. Uh, it, why don't you formulate them as questions and put them in the Q&A module of Zoom. And then for the people watching on Facebook, I'm monitoring if you want to post your questions there too. Uh, there's something interesting here from Aruna. I'm not, I'm not totally clear on how 
whether it's a comment or a question, but we'd love to, maybe you can formulate it as a question. We'll get reactions to that from Keith. Um, and same for other folks in the Zoom chat. So now let me jump back to the Q&A uh, module here. So we have something from uh, Sam. I think we've touched some of, some on some of this, but uh, let me put his question to you, his or her question. Um, are individuals with low self-esteem more likely to make New Year's resolutions? And then related point, do individuals with high self-esteem make resolutions to improve throughout the year, not just at its beginning? Uh, so let me put that to you, Keith, whichever one of those you want to tackle. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know that I have any special insight into that question. You know, I haven't, I, 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 again, I'm not a psychologist and I haven't looked at research about, you know, polls suggesting whether people with more or less self-esteem make New Year's resolutions. I think people make New Year's resolutions when they have things in their life that they want to improve. And that's true whether they have self-esteem or not. I think, uh, I think their level of self-esteem might have an impact on whether they stick to their New Year's resolutions. And, and it's because the same kinds of psychological factors that affect self-esteem affect, you know, the, the processes and, and uh, um, attitudes that, and habits that are required to, to sustain them. So, um, but, it, you know, it's not clear to me that someone who has high self-esteem is necessarily going to be somebody who, who has a top of mind to engage in constant self-improvement. I think that takes a certain perspective. It takes a certain view of yourself and a view of, um, of you know, the, the value and the moral propriety of that attention to yourself, as, as I brought up in the presentation. So, you know, I, I don't know that I have any special insight into that question, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I again, I, I'm in your position. I'm not, not a psychologist. I, one thing I would say is it's um, one way to gain some self-esteem, I think, is to have an orientation that one can improve. And I think one reason people don't is they, they sort of resign themselves. So this is the way I am, who, you know, what's there to do this sort of, I don't have control over my life. And, and the more they think that way, the, the more it's true because they're, they're letting go of the reins of their life. So there's an interesting, and again, I don't, I, I don't want to have a lot to, of insight on this, but I think there are interesting relationships between one's evaluation of oneself and the kind of things one is willing to do and not do and, and, so, and how those mutually affect each other. Um, I, I think uh, there's a lot of interesting work to be done there. Um, so let me go back to, there's another question here, which I think, uh, we have a question which I think is slightly off topic. Maybe we'll, we'll try to get to it near the end from Dennis, but um, one from David in the, in the queue. The general question is, do you have suggestions for influencing other people to improve their lives? And the concern is um, he knows someone who, who he thinks th there's room in their life to improve. It's someone very close to him, and, but he doesn't want to seem preachy. And also the person can get defensive and there's all sorts of, sort of obstacles. So any suggestions for navigating that kind of issue? <laughs> I mean, that's another kind of question where, where you know, the psychologists have have useful tips because this has to do with navigating social relationships and trying to um you know you're talking about kind of broaching difficult subjects that have to do with somebody else's self-improvement i mean um i mean one you know one uh um one 
resource that I that I I found useful and interesting. It's not something um, in the objectivist literature, but there's a book called Mindset uh, that talks about you know the sort of growth mindset versus a, what what she calls a fixed mindset. And a lot of the times when people get defensive about themselves, it's because they have a certain fixed mindset perspective. And you know, in that book, she talks about these different mindsets and and talks about ways that coaches and parents and teachers can encourage um, in, you know, their children or in, or in other people, um, a way of looking at themselves where they're focused on self-improvement and growth as opposed to, you know, are they just sort of being judged as who they are, you know, in that, in that moment. Um, so, you know, if you haven't read that book, you might find that useful. It's by a psychologist named Carol Dweck. It's called Mindset. So, um, yeah, I, I, again, I, I, I think there's a real skill to be gained in terms of uh, influencing people so that they can become, they can work on the, their own lives and improvement. Um, one suggestion that I think fits with Ayn Rand's approach and, and her whole philosophy is uh, in terms of influencing and just engaging with people is, is, you know, there's one way to tell someone, Hey, I think it would be great if you got fit, because if you don't you have a heart attack and then you'll die and I'll be sad. And, and that's all true. <laughs> that would be very bad. And, but that's an orientation toward avoiding a negative. And Ayn Rand has a, a really profound identification, uh, which you just dramatize in various ways in, in Atlas Shrugged and other places that, what's key in life is an orientation towards the positive, a love of values. Um, sort of motivation from love, I think is one way to put it. And so one thing that can be influential with some people, and I'm, again, I'm not pre presenting this as a kind of principle, but um, if you can orient someone toward the positive things they will gain if they take certain steps, I think that can be really motivating in, in many cases. Now, again, it's challenging if it's a, it's a long process to get to the point where they've improved themselves, but that kind of value orientation is really important. And it, 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 it just runs every, throughout Ayn Rand's approach to everything. Um, she's not primarily a critic of bad things, though she is very uh, um, articulate and forceful about the things that she thinks are destructive, but her whole orientation is, you know, in, in her fiction, it's the, the depiction of the ideal man. And in, in, in when she writes about cultural political issues, it's um, explaining how a rational approach would be way better than what we have now. And what we have now is essentially bankruptcy. So th there's kind of a, a fundamental mind shift in her philosophy, which is orienting yourself toward the values that could be achieved in, in the world. And, and I think in, in some limited context, I think when you're trying to influence someone or, or set them on a different path towards self-improvement, that can be really helpful if you tell them, look, we agree that it would be great if you were, you know, you want these things in your life. You want to be fitter. You want to, maybe you want to lose some weight and get into different kinds of clothes. You, you recognize all these things. Those are things worth going for. And I agree with you and, you know, that versus, hey, you're going to get diabetes if you keep on your diet the way you are, you know, all sorts of ways in which, and sometimes those are really important, but so I'm not, I'm not saying ignore that, but it's relevant to think what's the primary value here and how can you get someone to focus on that? Because I think that definitely um, sets a different premise in people's behavior. 
Um, okay, so we have some more questions. Uh, let me see. In so, yeah, go ahead. I see someone in the chat asking, uh, I said I referenced book, some books at the start of the presentation. Um, so on the more psychology side, I think that's what she might be referring to. Um, there was a book, so one of the books, so the, the psychology sort of self-help literature, uh, there's a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear um, that I think is useful in terms of thinking about these small incremental changes that one can make. The other, I, I didn't, I, I just put a slide up, but um, Edwin Locke, who's a retired professor of psychology from the University of Maryland, is it was sort of a pioneer in the whole field of goal setting. It was, it, it's primarily in the context of organizational behavior and you know, goal setting in business and that sort of thing. But there's a lot, you know, a, he's written numerous books that uh, a guide to studying for students. Um, and, you know, a lot has done lots of work on, on, on developed a whole theory of goal setting. Um, so again, it's Edwin Locke. Uh, and that's someone you could look at for, for more insight into, uh, into just the whole phenomenon of goal setting. Keith, I, I was just, uh, there are a couple more questions, but I just had a thought that I want to share with you and just get your reaction to this, which is, um, you know, one observation I've, I've made over the years is that you, I, I, I met people or um, I think this is a common thing that in, in their work life, they're, they can much more readily adopt improvements and be oriented toward goals and that kind of valuing the um, the business goals and, and so on, really focusing on that. And they, that comes more easily to them than in their sort of in the widest scope of their life, having that kind of commitment to their own well-being with a long-range purpose. And I'm just curious, one, have you noticed that? And two, do you have any thoughts about, because I think it ties in with what you're saying that there are, there are definitely, it seems like there are philosophical reasons why um, they're more comfortable or they're, they're more attuned to doing that in a business or work setting than in their personal life. Um, I, you know, I could, I could speculate about some reasons why I think that might, might be true. I mean, for one thing, um, you know, for most of us, our work is, you know, the main activity that we devote our time to in our life. You know, when we're, when we're at home, we're either sleeping or we're eating or we're, you know, having a little bit of social time or relaxation time. But, but our, the, our work is our, you know, and this is, this is actually, Ayn Rand's philosophical perspective on it that our that it's our it's our it's our primary sort of integrating value that we pursue in life, and um, so and I think that uh, that the idea that we of being productive and producing values and trading in the marketplace this is these are less controversial um, philosophically I think than. Uh, than um, the kind of moral perspective that it takes to work on some of those other areas. They're, 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 they're less sort of fraught with psychological uh, challenges and obstacles. Um, you know, so I think that could be part of it. 
Yeah, I was thinking, I, I tend to agree with that. And I think one other thing that I, observed, I, I noticed is um, in a business or work setting, often the goals are much more easily definable. They're narrower. So imagine, okay, you know, in the next quarter, you have to sell 16 cars from the, from the dealership. That's your goal. And you can focus on that and everything you do is oriented. That's different from, I'm not totally happy in my life. I'm not sure why that is. I'm not sure how to get to being happy. There are all kinds of things going on. So this is outside of work. And then what, what does that really look like? And should I be pursuing my happiness? And yes, but no. And, and there's sort of people get conflicted about that. And so the sort of the fundamental kind of goals are harder to think about and harder to break down and figure out both am I worth doing the, taking these steps to reach them? And what does it really look like to achieve these steps? I mean, and I, I think there's something to sort of that connects with what you were saying in the presentation, which is um, New Year's resolutions are like, often when they're positive, they're sort of piecemeal puzzle pieces of what would the big picture look like? And it's, you know, yeah, I need to lose 10 pounds. Okay, that, that's gonna help me. But what Ayn Rand is saying, let's, let's open the whole canvas. What, what does the full picture look like? Think about that. Yeah. I, I would add also that, um, you know, in our work, we, we spend all of our time and we get training and we have a certain professional expertise in the thing that we spend our time on every day. But all these other areas of life also require a huge amount of knowledge and expertise that most of us don't have. I mean, just think about nutrition. You know, what, are, what, is, the, what is the optimal diet you know, for, for human beings or you know, for you in particular, given your particular medical needs. That, that, I mean, there's a whole, there are whole, there's whole field of medical science devoted to studying these kinds of things. Most of us don't have that expertise. And it's where we, if we're trying to pursue a particular diet or to even just increase our understanding about nutrition and what's optimal for us, you know, that's a whole research project that we're doing on the side because it's not our full-time job. Or think about, you know, uh, navigating our relationships with our loved ones. You know, again, there's all kinds of, there's a whole, the whole there's whole, you know, reams of literature and psychology about how to go about doing that. And most of us are not experts on that. And we just sort of have to, have to kind of figure these things out uh, or, or parenting. I mean, you and I both have kids um, and we know that, I mean, it's, there's a lot of knowledge and skills that are required to be in a, to a parent effectively. And we have to kind of pick that up on the side. So I think that's part of what's going on there. I mean, we have our, our, our full-time job and our professional expertise is devoted to the thing that we work on. And then all these other areas of life, we have to acquire the skills, um, you know, kind of on the side. And, and, and that's part of the challenge. I think that's part of the challenge that people run into, you know, maybe, maybe that's part of what's going on with New Year's resolutions too, um, or exercise. I mean, what, what is, what's the best form of exercise for you? No, I don't know. <laughs> uh, let's go back to some of the uh, questions in the queue. Uh, a question from Ted, uh, can you mention something about long-term or sort of lifelong views and resolutions? And I, I, I take that to mean sort of lifelong goals and, and that perspective on life, but you can follow up if that's not quite right. Yeah, I mean, I, so, I mean, maybe this is touching on the issue of, do we just do this once a year or is this sort of an ongoing thing? I think, um, you know, 
it's important to uh, think about your life on all different scales, right? And and you know, people talk about getting that kind of thirty thousand feet perspective versus you know the runway kind of perspective. Um, and you want to you want to take stock of of you know what are your most important values, your career, your relationships, you know, the, the leisure activities, the things you like to engage in. What are your values in all of those different areas, and where are you in terms of your pursuit of those values? Um, you want to look at that, you know, on the sort of where do I want to be in ten years perspective, and also what do I want to be doing next week, <laughs> kind of thing. So, um, I think both are important. All right, uh, question from Tim. Uh, so he's referring to an essay in the Virtue of Selfishness. I take it he's read some of Ayn Rand's works. It's the essay, Mental Health Versus Mysticism and Self-Sacrifice. I forget if that's exact title. I think that's one by Nathaniel Brandon included mm -hmm. in the book. So he's asking for a comment about um, how that essay relates to some of the basic premises you've raised in connection with um, altruism and its impact on psychology and then sort of applying that to goals and, and resolutions. Yeah, I haven't reread that essay recently, but I, um, it, my, if my recollection is that I, I think it sounds some of the themes that I was trying to stress in the, in the presentation, that the effect that, um, and actually in the introduction to the virtue of selfishness, Ayn Rand talks about the effect that, the, that altruism being the dominant school of morality, the effect that that has on, um, on, people trying to seek moral guidance. You know, the, the idea that uh, we're sort of left without moral guidance from the whole field of ethics is like the, 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 the field of ethics is a science and it's a science whose job is to provide guidance on how to pursue values and how to, how to you know, figure out the principles that will lead to long-term success and happiness in life. Um, but that's not the way it's, it's uh, understood or taught by most academics who work in the field of ethics. And so that, that um, you know, it's almost as though, you know, we had a whole profession of doctors who, th who thought that their job was, you know, to f make sure that people's big toe was like the healthiest it could possibly be. And then what about the rest of your body? Well, I don't, they don't have anything to say about that, you know? Um, it's as weird as if, as if that we're, we're sort of left without any guidance whatsoever on how to make sure our heart is healthy and our, you know, cardiovascular system and all this other stuff, <laughs> right? Um, uh, that's the situation we're in when it comes to ethics. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I would amplify or just echo some aspects of that. So if you read as well her writings on art and where psychology is very important and interconnects. Um, one of her observations just is that the, the, the sciences have made real advances, the hard sciences, but fields like psychology and, and just the humanities generally, the subjects concerned with human life and, and history and so forth, they're not nearly where they, you know, they're not nearly on par with the hard sciences and, and what they've uncovered and and she she argues that one one factor just is the kind of philosophical framework that that is conventionally accepted, and specifically the the, the 
moral theory of altruism or self-sacrifice where I, I think in one place she puts it, she, it has made man an, a stranger to himself. Like you don't, people just don't learn the skills of introspection, which is relevant to knowing what you want out of life and what you, what you're experiencing, what you should make of it, how to evaluate your emotional reaction, sort of your emotional life and your goals. And, and there's a lot to say about that. And the, it's a real tragedy that, as you put it, you know, there's a whole field that isn't really doing what it should be doing, which is giving guidance to human, uh, human beings in, in how to live their lives. And the, um, the, there's a lot to be said for the sort of the massive but underappreciated influence of bad ideas and, and leaving us in the place where we are, where, you know, for some people, unfortunately, it just, it, you know, New Year's resolutions is the one time a year they allow themselves to, okay, and now I'm going to do something good about myself. And that's not at all the orientation that I think is healthy or, or, or needed in life. Um, all right, so uh, a couple more questions. Let's see if we can get them in. Well, let me see. There's a couple on um, on the Facebook. Let's see if there's a comments or questions. Okay. Um, some suggestions for you on what to write. Um, so there's a question in the queue from anonym, an anonymous attendee on, on Zoom. Uh, maybe you can offer some thoughts on this, Keith. Isn't it odd, the person asks, that much of the popular self-help and habits slash psychology books are consistent with Ayn Rand's philosophy, but she doesn't have the same influence. And he gives examples of some influential books like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Atomic Habits, and, and he, the, the person suggests there are others. So what do you make of that? Do you agree with that assessment? Do you think what, what accounts for it? <clears throat> I think there's a way in which um those kinds of works are, are taking more concrete issues and offering more concrete kinds of advice. The advice that philosophy has to offer is sort of uh, one step, um, it's sort of at a higher level of abstraction. And I think it can be, it can be more difficult to understand, uh, to understand the principles that philosophy has to offer and, and understand how to apply them to your life. You know, um, so uh, I think, I mean, Ayn Rand is, is, is um, you know, there are millions and millions of people who devoured her novels and love uh, her ideas because of the way they're portrayed in the novels. I think it takes, it takes a little bit more effort to go from that to really dig into her ideas and to, and to appreciate her as a philosopher um and you know and, and it's not clear to me that so the the questioner the way the questioner is putting it is that there are a lot of popular self-help books that are consistent with Rand's philosophy it's not clear to me that they necessarily are 100 percent there's um I, and i think to the extent that they that they uh are are less helpful it's when they don't have the kind of clarity in terms of their philosophical foundation that's really needed. So if they don't, you know, one huge area where I think um, that is a problem is, is the mainstream kind of perspective on free will is that free will is kind of this mystical, unscientific myth. And that, 
you know, that if we take science seriously, we would embrace determinism. Now, if you look at some of these uh, psychology books that are actually, that, that actually provide really useful advice, like the book Mindset, it Im it's implicit throughout the book that people have a basic control over the way they think and over their minds and over the choices that they make and that they, in other words, that they have free will. But nowhere is it ever discussed that this, as an abstract theoretical issue, that this is true. And I, you know, and I think this has to have an effect, that there's a disconnect between, at a theoretical level, the way people think about um, issues like free will versus determinism versus, you know, what, what it, it creates a disconnect between um, works where people are trying to offer, you know, concrete advice and tools and skills uh, and they're disconnected from a from the kind of philosophical and theoretical grounding that would really make them um, consistent and more impactful. Um, this is just an anecdote. Uh, I haven't studied the field of self-help books uh, with any systematic uh, approach at all, but I, I, I've run into a couple of people who are involved in psychology and one person, um, and I, I, my impression is that in under unappreciated ways, Ayn Rand's ideas have influenced some people who work in psychology. And mm -hmm. maybe it's not a direct line of influence. Maybe they haven't read her themselves. But the, the whole, I think she's opened, just as in, I think politically, she's opened up the conversation about capitalism. Like the fact that people talk about capitalism in a moral context, I think that's directly attributable to Ayn Rand's influence in the culture. And I think there are similar things this is part speculation, but I think there's reason to think that in, in uh, um, I think that the fact that there's more willingness to talk about self-esteem and, and, and uh, the valuing of the individual's life and happiness, I think that it's hard to imagine that's not in, in significant part influenced by her. And, and just that she created this kind of philosophically robust approach to no, this is the made. This is the concern of ethics. A rational ethics is concerned with your own self-achieved happiness. Um, so I, I actually think, you know, I, I'd be interested to talk to people in psychology to see if they think that's borne out. But the anecdotal perspective I've taken is that that seems to be the case. I think I think that's true in the business world too, in a different sense. In that the, that the number of really prominent and top level business people in Silicon Valley, outside of Silicon Valley, but people who've been influenced by her. And, and you know, the, the kinds of innovation and work and pr productivity that they've engaged in. Um, I, I have to speculate along the same lines that you are, that, 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 that um, in terms of the kinds of issues that I'm trying to raise, that I was trying to raise in my presentation, having, having the kind of moral perspective that you get from Atlas Shrugged that that this kind of productive work isn't it's not it's not just that it's okay that that this is the this is what is the essence of the good it it sort of frees people up in a certain way to to um you know value that kind of work and to really go after it in a way that that our culture kind of pushes against. So I, I, I think there's a similar influence. I, I, you know, I wonder, I mean, I don't know that you could ever 
trace this, but but the the amount of, of impact that just that moral perspective has had on the the leaders who've driven economic progress over the last couple of decades, how much of that you know, got, got a significant moral push from people having read The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged and having Ayn Rand's perspective on life. Um, you know, it would be interesting if one could have some way to measure that, but you know, I think it's a similar kind of phenomenon that the influence is really there. Yeah, I mean, I think of that, I mean, maybe the heading for this is the kind of moral fire that Ayn Rand um, kindles in people that they, they have some of it, but she tells them, no, it, it's right to have this orientation about life. Values are important. Ideas matter. The truth is important and achievement is important in your own life. You have one do, do something meaningful with it. I, I definitely think that that's a pervasive kind of influence. Yeah. And that, and that, and that, you know, being a productive innovator on a massive scale is an, is a noble, thing i mean that, that it's, it's a heroic endeavor you know being a jeff bezos is a heroic endeavor and yet what we what do we what does he get from our culture all he gets is attacks and vilifications why do we need billionaires right no the the, the innovations that he's done are, are 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 heroic and should be celebrated as such uh keith so we're basically at time and unfortunately there, there are still a couple of questions in the queue we appreciate all the people who've submitted questions we, we love getting your questions, read all of them, and some of them become webinars. So please send us more. Uh, even if you're not attending, you can send us uh, email webinars at ironrand.org with your suggestions or questions. And uh, just in the last couple of minutes, uh, I'll hand it back to you, Keith, if you want to wrap up. Well, let me just, yeah, let me just share my screen again. Um, so yeah, that, that brings us to the end. And, you know, once again, we do these, these, this is a weekly web series. Uh, next week, you're going to talk about who decides what's right and wrong. As I said earlier, I, I, that's a really interesting question. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about that. So for all of you watching out there, be sure to tune in to Elon's webinar next week, same time, same day, and send us your big questions. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you online next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.